This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. The Malaysian government has estimated revenue of 307.6 billion in 2024, of which tax revenue is almost 80% or 12.3% of GDP. Simultaneously, there will be efforts to broaden the tax base with the introduction of capital gains tax and e-invoicing, whilst also improving compliance and transparency. But does the current tax system meet the requirements of being efficient, certain, convenient and fair? For answers, Dr. Varinda Jit Singh, a tax advisor who is currently Vice Chair of the International Tax Commission of International Chamber of Commerce and Adjunct Professor at the University of Monash, joins us. Thank you very much for coming in to discuss what some people find a very scary topic, which is tax. Thank you. Thank you. I think let's just start with capital gains tax, right? Yes. Because yes. that's the one that's been on the minds of all of us. So for foreign gains, effective on January 1st and domestic gains, effective March 1st. But I've already been reading, especially in the Edge Weekly, that accountants are still trying to make sense of it, with the professional bodies planning to submit a paper to the Ministry of Finance for clarification. I'm not the tax professional, so why is there this uncertainty? Actually, Xiaoling, uh, there are always uncertainty whenever something comes about, in particular because of uh, language in the legislation or in the, uh, at that time the bill. And then secondly, it's also always about some exemptions that we were expecting, which were not in the bill. And then the question is, how is this going to be affected? And then the other thing is always about interpretation of some of the words used by the government in their draft or in their final legislation. So clarifications are still important because at the end of the day, sometimes the issue is all about scope. Uh, sometimes the issue about timing. Uh, and sometimes even like in the case of this uh, capital gains tax on uh, sales that you make overseas and then you bring it back, that's only on the basis of remittance. Mm. But actually, it's not absolutely clear in the, in, the, in the legislation. So you need to have all kinds of guidelines coming out. So my gripe with all this, as uh, I think many would know, is that we should be introducing a piece of legislation and guidelines should be ready on day one. Day one or even maybe before? Before, in terms of consultation, mm. and then gives the authorities the opportunity to do that. And then after that, it it's tabled right at the beginning of the introduction of the law. So unfortunately, in Malaysia, we tend to wait for the legislation to be out or announcements to be made before you start even drafting some of these clarifications and so on. So this is, an, this is a bit of a negative way of approaching tax policy. And I dare say that if you look at developed nations, even the UK, and even to some extent Singapore, preparations are made early. The only challenge here is that we have the secrecy provisions here and there thrown at you in terms of we cannot be discussing this before it's announced, things like that. But in practice, I think the authorities here have woken up and they do have consultations on impending changes. So they do get feedback, mm. but somehow the drafting of the guidelines and so on still takes time. And um, 
So perhaps it's capacity building. It's perhaps it's about getting the right people in the right places to do this. Yeah. Because I would imagine this is very confusing for businesses which are in limbo. Agreed. Maybe they want to make a decision. And now they're like, what do we do? They go to their accountant yeah. who looks back at them and says, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer yes. for you. So back to this thing about certainty. And businesses need certainty. Government knows this. They mean, they know this anyway. But uh, the issue is certainty is, is paramount in mm. doing business. So... But time and again, we find that the, the authorities uh, keep failing in that particular aspect of, of giving us everything up front so that we can plan, we can manage. Uh, that's really the gripe, and okay. we need to improve on that. There will be an increase in service tax from 6 to 8%, with, I think, some exemptions on services yes. related to food, beverages, telco services. But yep. it's also been extended to more services, so logistics, brokerage, underwriting, and yep. karaoke. I heard $3 billion extra revenue, great. But do you see issues with the addition of these services? And what about this co- you know, compounding effect that I keep reading about? Should we, in the first place, consider a harmonised sales and service tax instead? Yeah. Um, now, so I think the 6% to 8% uh, service tax increase is was expected. Uh, the only difficulty is that it's not applicable across the board to all services. The second thing that was also expected, and we should expect more of this, is the widening of the scope of coverage. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, when you look at the other version, uh, which is a harmonized SST that uh, I'm also, in a way, a proponent of, mm. that is more to do with the sales tax. Okay. Now, the sales tax is where manufacturers get imposed, right? And uh, so when manufacturers, um, there's no such thing as one manufacturer. There are many, many types of manufacturers, sub-manufacturers as well. So when someone was to pay a sales tax, sells it off to a sub-manufacturer who modifies it, you also end up charging. So there's the compounding and effect. And a compounding, or we call it a cascading effect. Mm. And that is what the harmonized sales and service tax proposal is meant to create what we call bubbles. Mm. Uh, which create exemptions for those sub-manufacturers so that you do not keep charging. You only charge when you then sell to a wholesaler or retailer. And that, I think, is classic. It's a, it's a classic simplicity in its form. A but it is It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid because GST has got this situation of giving you back credit for your input tax. And this, in a way, does that without even looking at a tax invoice and just saying... You don't have to charge, but another person will charge. Uh, the challenge here is to identify the bubbles mm. and uh, all kinds of sub-manufacturers, who are they and how do you classify them. And HSST could actually be used to impose a luxury goods tax, for example. Which is on, the next thing yeah. I was going to talk to you about, Dr. Berinderjit. yes. Because, help me understand this, yes. this is another thing that's unclear. It's supposed to take effect... On May 1st? Yes. Yeah, I think four more months to go. And of course, we know that will happen in a flash. But so far, correct me if I'm wrong, there is no list of taxable items and no defined thresholds. There is no formal list and no formal definition. There has been some uh, draft papers being circulated for consultation among the professional bodies. Uh, and uh, it uh, has raised concerns because at the end of the day, the question is how do you how do you decide what that, is luxury? Uh, yeah, how do you decide that a car which is two, let's say above two hundred thousand is a luxury good, 
and uh, so on and so forth, right? So yeah, someone even mentioned something very simple. Do you see an Apple phone as a luxury or an Android as a necessity? Yes, yes. So, so I think luxury goods, to be fair also, this classification of luxury goods does exist in many other countries. In particular, if you look at Indonesia, for example, under their VAT regime, they do have a higher rate of tax for goods that they classify as luxuries and then a lower rate of tax for the rest and, of course, some exemptions. My, again, contention is why create a new piece of legislation when we do have existing pieces of legislation that we should be using to the best of our ability. Businesses do not want to see new legislations being issued time and again. So in the end of the day, we have so many taxes to look at. Mm. We should just focus on the sales tax, service tax, and the income tax, and the CGT. And that's what we should be worried about. Um, so, so to me, at the end of the day, I think I understand uh, that the Ministry of Finance is talking about a new legislation for these high-value goods because they want to give refunds to shoppers, foreign, to foreigners, tourists. tourists. And uh, again, uh, tongue-in-cheek, I will say that uh, I don't think the tourists come to Malaysia to buy luxury goods. So hence, why bother about this small little element of uh, advantage that we think we are giving to foreigners visiting Malaysia. Mm. One of the challenges that our, our tax authorities have is this thing about sometimes I feel that due respect to the MOF, Ministry of Finance, is not given by other ministries, right? Every ministry fights for its, its jurisdictional territory. Tourism industry comes in very, very strong. Whenever you think of imposing a tax where tourists are impacted, you, are, you get a pushback. Mm. And this again comes back to another pet gripe of mine, which is all these duty exam islands that we have. And that again uh, raises many issues because there's so much of leakage. And recently we did have in the paper something about luxury cars and some, and some escaping duties. Now, why does that keep happening? Uh, enforcement is weak, but will that ever change? it will likely not change. So the question arises is, why do we need this this tax-free islands? Do we really get that much of shopping by foreigners or even Malaysians? I don't think so. Mm. So if we took away all this, we then create a level playing field and so on. So, But again, the issue in the past when I was involved in some of these private sector labs in those days, 15, 10, 10 to 12 years ago, uh, was this idea was put forward by me in a particular lab. And then the next day we had uh, uh, the some of the, the officials from the public uh, tax agency saying, no, that's a no-go. We've already got uh, uh, issues with certain ministries. And so that's it. It's taken off the table without really doing a justification in terms of an economic study. Mm. But my, my suggestion still is that perhaps we shouldn't have a a high-value goods tax. We just go back to the sales tax or service tax. In this case, sales tax because this is on goods. Yes. And, and just raise impose, the Impose a higher rate. And, uh, and uh, do not worry about refunds because refunds create other issues. Do we still for, Are we forgetting the issues in GST refunds that, that also were concerned to the government because the refunds were extremely high and therefore there was uh, the doubt as to whether they were legitimate.
On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Dr. Vrindajit Singh, a tax professional who is currently Vice Chair of the International Tax Commission of the International Chamber of Commerce and adjunct professor at the University of Monash. After the break, how important is it for Malaysia to embark on holistic tax reform? BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill, where in the hot seat this morning is Dr. Vrindajit Singh, a tax professional who is currently Vice Chair of the International Tax Commission of the International Chamber of Commerce and adjunct professor at the University of Monash. Before the break, what taxes should we be aware of in 2024 and could implementation be made smoother? Dr. Vrindajit, I want to talk about one more tax before we move on, which is e-invoicing. I think this one, there's a bit of jitters down the spine of most businesses. Now, it's only for companies that have an annual review of 100 million. They would be required to comply with electronic invoicing requirements this year. And I think they're altogether three phases, right? Can you correct me if I'm wrong? This is a step in the right direction, isn't it? It is. If you look at international developments and even look at the OECD now, and uh, uh, OECD also has reports that it produces and shares with the audience because I am also a subscriber of OECD developments in in terms of my interest in tax policy. And you find that 68 countries have actually adopted e-invoicing. And um, and the reason why this is catching on is simply because of the availability of access to data, mm. right? And the ability of the tax authorities to therefore do audits online without you bothering about asking you to produce. Going to your office and yeah. taking the files. Yeah. The only thing about all this is, like almost all situations where new initiatives are announced, the authorities think it's easy to just implement. This August is meant to be a start date for those large companies. And maybe we think that the large companies with such a you know, 100, 100 million turnover can afford uh, uh, to do the necessary jigging in terms of the IT and, and, and so on and, and, and then submit their invoices. Not so easy because invoices is not like one person in organization issues invoices. There are actually many mm-hmm. other touch points. So the companies need to get their act together. And in the end of the day, woe behold, you engage consultants here and there to try to do that. But in the end of the day, we then create a situation where we increase compliance costs. But leave the big companies aside. The issue about small businesses is this. Uh, the authority, the Inland Revenue, by, by the way, this is the Inland Revenue Board initiating the invoicing. And I just like to make it very clear to those who may be doubtful that eventually uh, there is an understanding that the Inland Revenue Board will provide access to the customs authorities to the invoicing. And that I am very pleased to to note because we were worried that the customs will introduce their own e-invoicing initiative soon, and but they won't. So that makes sense, all right? That's aligned with international practice. The issue with small businesses is, if you go back to GST, we had small businesses having to to get software. Yeah. Yeah. In this situation, what is happening is that the Inner Revenue Board is is uh, is in the process of creating a portal, uh, and uh, and that portal would have templates. And that template should be available for the small businesses to use, key in the right information, and that's submitted. Now, 
they say that sounds that's, okay on paper. Yeah, when paper. You, yeah. So that that's what the authorities want to do. The portal is for the small businesses, whereas the bigger businesses can do what they what they normally do: engage their own team in house or get consultants, and they can easily submit through a, what they call an API mm. uh, initiative. So, so. Uh, um, I dare say that the authorities think it's so easy at a switch of a button, at a, at a click of a button that you can actually implement, but that's not the case. And I thought the authority, well, Inner Revenue Board did not initiate GST in the past. It was customs. The customs authorities would know the issues faced by businesses when they were switching over to GST and, and so on. So, was there any engagement, you know, or was there sufficient engagement then with for, the business community? For to, e-invoicing? For e-invoicing. There has been engagement, but as usual, uh, we will argue that it's never sufficient. Uh, they only engage some big players and some of the professional uh, bodies. Mm. Uh, perhaps they should be engaging chambers of commerce, uh, and they should at least having having a more more discussions. And I, I like I said, they think it's easy, but it's not. We we agree with the benefits. I think we all Nobody agree with benefits. The Nobody disputes the idea of it. Not at all. And uh, the issue is always about how can you make it easy. And I think our main focus, even in this this chat today, Shaoning, is all about clarity, certainty, and um, and and therefore making things easier. So simplicity. Which then leads to my next question. Do you think then the taxation system in this country requires a holistic review? Because we've been having somewhat of an ad hoc approach and we you know, include new taxes because yeah. we've got this fiscal deficit that we want to bring down. And we are all looking at ways to broadening our tax revenue yeah. for sure. Yeah. So what you know, Should we be looking at perhaps creating a, a lo- like almost a taxation policy plan that has a 5-10 year horizon instead? Yeah. Yeah. I'm an advocate of having a five to ten year roadmap, fiscal roadmap in terms of the tax policy. Now, I'm sure the authorities are fearful of this. Uh, the reason they are fearful of this is that they think when they put out a five, ten year roadmap, it creates certainty. But that's not the idea. Or the maybe idea, people that think, oh, I'll evade this tax yeah, or evade that tax. Yeah. The idea here is all about giving some milestones of the intention it doesn't mean that you will implement it. You may defer it. But the issue at the end of the day is that you have a visualization of your plan and then you have stakeholders giving input and that gives you a much more veracity in terms of the way you are mm. creating this. So so um, I I am a proponent of that and I, and I go back to a little bit to what you just said at the beginning. We've had a couple of situations where we've had once a tax review panel set up, there was years ago, and they discussed certain things. There were some economists sitting on that tax review panel. Uh, professional bodies were engaged on certain specific things, but it became a very specific focus on certain types of legislation or issues and modifying some of the terminology, not about a holistic reform. Mm. Then in 2018, the then government had this tax reform committee, and we did submit a full report. Uh, and I must say that what has happened in that report is that we are beginning to see certain things being picked from the report and introduced over time. One of them was the tax identification number. Yes. So, but again, nothing holistic. It's always about ad hoc decisions and tinkering. So I do think it should be done. But then the next question someone will ask is about well, how do we do that? Where actually, do we start? Yeah, actually, I think the civil service 
itself should be the ones which should carry this banner in terms of developing things in-house, creating draft plans, putting forward for shareholder, stakeholder views, and then fine-tuning it. But the civil service here operates in a very strange way, but may, I dare say maybe in most developing countries as well. They don't act unless instructed by the minister. And I have, but ministers come and go. I dare say, Governments I dare say come and go too. ministers do not know what is best. They rely on civil servants and no doubt civil servants, when the minister asks a civil service, civil service puts forward a paper, gets a mandate, then they go into a deeper research. I, I, I certainly don't think that's the way forward. Civil service is the only constant here. Yes. Politicians change. The civil service should take it upon themselves to develop something for the long term and then discuss it and share it. And then it becomes little things you could introduce over time. At least you have a long-term plan. Someone, I put up this in a, in a recent LinkedIn post that I had as well about this. And I had, had someone telling me uh, comment that politicians change and therefore this will never work. But that's not the point. The point here is the civil service comes up with it. It's just a plan. It's just a draft and it can be modified. The other thing I, I do notice is our tax as a percentage of GDP yeah. is very low here in Malaysia. Yeah. I think last figures I saw 2021, 11.8% versus mm-hmm. Thailand at 14.1%. Uh, Vietnam is 22%. Two things. Yeah. Should we should there be KPIs imposed on the tax authorities in terms of tax collection and not just absolute figures which they yeah. love? Yeah. And how do we then ensure that there's better tax compliance? It's a twofold thing. One is tax administrations are very good at be seen to be complying in terms of targets, but the targets may not be high enough. So I do think a KPI, and to me a minimum is if your GDP growth rate is 5%, then your revenues must increase minimum 5%, if not more. That's number one. Uh, but I do think that your that's a minimum threshold, right? Mm. Your target should be even higher because at the end of the day, my own uh, comment is that I do think that we are not extracting enough from the existing laws and from the existing taxpayers or non-taxpayers who should be taxpayers. Which is then the question of the tax compliance. Correct. So it goes back to then the second issue is about the compliance. First issue with the administrators, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And what are the administrators doing? And to be fair, the authorities are doing data analytics and so on. But, you know, I I, I don't know what the outcome is of that but because it's not shared. And the issue then at the end of the day will be compliance. So that is about informal economy, underground economy, and getting the, getting everybody who should be paying taxes. So the tax identification number is one way, but that's taking a very slow, progressive steps. And uh, when we say tax identification number, we say everyone, every individual, 18 years above, is allocated a number. It doesn't mean you pay taxes. It simply means you are in the system and you'll be educated and be aware. Then all businesses that are incorporated, companies with a registrar of business or a com- or companies commission gets a number. And then you have data that is available. So I do think compliance, a lot can be done. And my last point here is about the fact that we have a very narrow tax base in terms of individuals. And then the, the comment here is always about we have a low wage system in Malaysia, right? So therefore, a majority of our people earn a certain level, which is below the tax threshold. I do not, I'm not forcing taxes down the throats of people, but I think everybody should pay something, even though your salaries may be 2000 and above, maybe for them a 10 ringgit or 100 ringgit a year, 
would be a good start because then it gets you aware. Into the culture of yeah. being taxed. So we um, there's so many avenues to cut expenditure, to increase taxes. And I think we need a report card on, on the initiatives and the activities done. And that's what should be what Ministry of Finance should be doing in terms of our fiscal tax policy as initiatives. On that note, thank you for your time. Today in the Breakfast Grill was Dr. Brindijit Singh, Vice Chair of the International Tax Commission of the International Chamber of Commerce and, of course, a tax professional. I'm Wong Xiaoning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.